you're seeking biblical wisdom and understanding in these difficult and trying times, and you recognize the power of God's Word to delve deep into the issues of the heart, then welcome to Biblical Counseling Today with Dr. John Kwasney, husband, father, counselor, author, and teacher. Join us for Christ-centered, gospel-driven truth concerning our individual, marital, and parenting struggles. This is Biblical Counseling Today. In one of his classic songs, the great marriage expert Frank Sinatra sings these famous words, Love and marriage, love and marriage, they go together like a horse and carriage. This I tell you, brother, you can't have one without the other. So is Old Blue Eyes correct? Can you have marriage without love? Well, there are certainly those in countries that still practice arranged marriages that would say you can. They would say marriage is built solely on commitment and love is just optional. And unfortunately, there are plenty of people out there experiencing loveless marriages but are still hanging together for the children or for economic expedience. Yet Sinatra is certainly right to say that love and marriage are inextricably linked. After all, Christian marriage is supposed to mirror the love that Christ has for his church. Jesus marries his people, thereby committing to love them forever. But I would add another stanza onto Sinatra's song. Love and compassion, love and compassion, they must be both present in a Christian marriage. This I tell you, brother, don't separate love from compassion. Okay, that doesn't have quite the same ring to it, does it? But I would suggest that compassion must be connected to love in marriage, or love will just end up descending to the level of the world's definition of love. A marriage without godly love and Christ-like compassion does not glorify God or give the world an accurate picture of the love and kindness of our Lord. Unfortunately for many Christian couples, the love they used to have for their spouses has become covered over with hurt, bitterness, and unforgiveness. And sometimes we are much more compassionate towards other people than we are for our spouses who really need it from us the most. So as obvious as it is that love and marriage go together like a horse and carriage, they will not necessarily coexist with one another all on their own. We need to dig down deep into our hearts and grow in our love for our spouses, as well as in compassionate kindness. How great is God's gift of marriage when godly love and compassion are flowing, grounded in the love of God for sinners. Well, let's begin then today with the topic of compassion in marriage, since that appears first in our Colossians 3 passage. The Apostle Paul writes, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Take a minute and think about this question. Would you describe your spouse as a compassionate person? If you say yes, does he or she show you compassion regularly on a day-to-day basis? To put it another way, are you often more compassionate towards those outside of your marriage than those inside? As God's chosen ones, we are loved by God. We are his beloved. He shows us compassion, and we are to show compassion to others, 
especially to our spouses. In Colossians 3, verse 12, we are actually given five different words that form a cluster of behaviors that are connected to this great and important virtue of compassion. The first word used by Paul here is mercy. We are to have compassionate hearts, according to the ESV translation. But this Greek word or a Greek set of words can also be translated bowels of mercy. That's certainly much more descriptive, isn't it? Mercy, we need to think about what that is in marriage. By definition, mercy is compassion toward the miserable. It is action taken on behalf of the pitiful. Is your spouse ever miserable or pitiful? Bill certainly is in a pitiful state right now. He has grown to hate his job because his boss is so demanding. He's always frustrated with his coworkers, and he doesn't get paid what he needs to be paid. But whenever Bill tries to talk to Cindy about it, his wife, she gets frustrated and even angry at times. She tells Bill that this is a terrible time to change jobs, and, and she refuses to even think about going back to work. So Bill has determined not to share his difficulties with Cindy anymore. If we're honest, it is very tempting to be critical of our spouses more than we are merciful. We're often hard on them rather than soft towards them. We see things that need to be changed in their lives rather than things that need our mercy and compassion. Cindy thinks this way about Bill. If he would just do a better job at work, his boss probably wouldn't be so hard on him. If he would just be a better guy with his coworkers, he'd probably have a better time at work. After all, mercy sounds so weak, doesn't it? We have mercy rules for the team that is so bad we are beating them by 20 runs or 50 points. We give mercy to the poor stray cat that is starving and all shriveled up. But mercy and compassion for a spouse? That can be hard to do, especially if their misery is making us miserable too. And it is even harder to be merciful after they've done something against us. Oftentimes we're too angry to even think of offering mercy in that situation. Yet as beneficiaries of the mercies of God, we are to be abounding in mercy, even to that person closest to us, even to the one we don't typically have pity for. So consider the possibilities of mercy for these situations. Your spouse is short with you after a difficult day. Your spouse forgets your anniversary or makes a very weak attempt at celebrating it. Your spouse forgets to do something you asked him to do, maybe repeatedly. Your spouse doesn't listen very well. Your spouse does something foolish, leaves the doors unlocked at home, loses a cell phone, wallet, car keys. Your spouse breaks down and cries. Your spouse is irritable towards you. Does the giving of mercy help in these situations? Or does it feel like we're just allowing our spouse to get away with bad behavior? Well, we often withhold mercy because of our sense of justice. We want the person to pay for his or her sin. We want the behavior to change. Giving mercy just feels like a free pass, doesn't it? Well, there's certainly a time for justice. We serve a righteous God who demands change and obedience. 
Yet aren't you glad for all the mercy you receive from the Lord? Does it change your behavior? If we admit it to ourselves, we are all probably deficient in the giving of mercy to our husbands and our wives. Maybe we would actually see more heart changes if we gave more liberal compassion and mercy, the sort of deep affection that puts the heart of Christ on display in our marriage. So what does Paul say is also connected to compassion next? Well, he says as compassionate Christians, the next essential quality that should be abundant in our marriage is kindness. What is kindness? Kindness is that goodness of heart that is on display in our actions, but even more often in our words. Why is it that we are often kinder to strangers than we are to our spouses? Do we care more about what others think about us than what our wife or husband thinks about us? Are first impressions more important to us than ongoing regular kindnesses? Well, Jerry defends his lack of kindness to his wife, Kim, in terms like this. I should be able to be myself with my wife. I shouldn't have to put on a false front or choose my words so carefully. So with that reasoning, is Jerry being his real self to his wife or just an unkind jerk? How has he come to rationalize that his unkind words and behaviors are acceptable under the guise of just being real? What is real is that your spouse needs and deserves more kindness than anyone else in your life. And oftentimes, you should guard what you say and how you say it more with your spouse out of compassion and love. Yes, I know that our emotions get involved more deeply with our spouse. We speak and act out of hurt and anger rather than from hearts of compassion. But the real problem tends to be that we just take our spouse for granted. We don't choose our words carefully. We are mute when kind words would make his or her day. We don't think about acts of kindness nearly enough. The little kindnesses like serving the other before ourselves or gifts that show we are thinking of the other person. Christians above all people should be the kindest of souls. And that is especially true in Christian marriage. Your spouse needs your kindness more than you know. Then let's go to compassion quality number three. And we'll start with another pop quiz question. Do you think of yourself as the lowliest in your marriage? Of course not. You are definitely the better one. Who in the world wants to think of themselves as lower than someone else? We all want to be the best. We all want to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. But Paul says the next compassion quality is humility. The Christian is called to be humble. To be humble is to honestly and truthfully count others as better than you. This is not some low self-esteem, self-pitying attitude where you think you have nothing to offer your spouse or to the world for that matter. That's a false humility designed to elicit sympathy or just to manipulate another person. True humility is rooted in a big view of God's holiness and a right understanding of sin. Remember that the Apostle Paul saw himself as the chief of sinners. Do you? A heart of humility in your marriage is a great balm for all the sin that goes on between the two of you. If you think about it, self-righteousness and pride are the great twin killers of marriage. 
when you see yourself as trying harder, working harder, loving and serving more than your spouse, you will end up in a very bad place. That's Mary's problem in her marriage. She sees herself as working so much harder on her marriage than Nathan. Even when she sins, it's usually in response to Nathan's sin. So how can Mary grow in humility when even other people recognize that she is the much better spouse? Well, she needs the Spirit to move in her heart, doesn't she? Even if she may really be working hard in her marriage, her pride is overinflating the case. Instead, Mary needs to be driven by a high view of her spouse and a realization that even all her righteous acts are just filthy rags in God's eyes. What love will burst forth in their marriage then if there's widespread humility? Well, then there's compassion quality number four, according to our Colossians 3 passage, and that is meekness. Let's just skip over this one. It's worse than humility. Meekness. Even the word sounds so wimpy. It's so spineless, isn't it? So are you meek in your marriage? What is meekness anyway? Well, meekness defined is simply this, submission in the face of provocation. Does that sound better? Of course not. We live in a dog-eat-dog world where only the strong survive. We're taught to always fight back and stand up for ourselves. So again, I ask you, in your marriage, are you meek? Are you the one who would rather endure injury than to inflict it on your spouse? Again, we're not talking about some doormat approach to life here. Meekness is a quality of our Lord Jesus Christ. I know this may sound like a recipe for abuse. Being unwilling to get revenge or return evil for evil puts us in a very vulnerable place. But the truth is that meekness is only possible if we're trusting in God for our protection of heart, mind, and body. If you think you have to protect yourself from your spouse, you will never be meek in your attitudes or actions. If you struggle with being meek, consider how our conflicts and arguments in marriage would be significantly reduced simply by one or both spouse operating from a heart of meekness. It will take a work of the Spirit since our natural inclination is to pour fuel on our conflicts rather than work to extinguish them. And last but not least, patience. Compassion in marriage is possible only with the virtue of patience, also referred to here as long-suffering. Yet another word that causes us much discomfort and angst. Has anyone ever prayed for less patience? because I have way too much? In marriage, impatience happens all the time, in little things and big things. Even though we know that a lack of patience does not glorify God, aren't we often quick to rationalize it away? We can compare ourselves to other, much less patient people, or point to the fact that our patience has been pushed beyond its limits. What are the biblical limits of patience, by the way? Impatience can be verbalized in many ways, typically connected to either anger or anxiety. Nora often says these words to her husband, Oliver, you just exhaust me. I am so tired of it. I just don't know how much more I can stand. Granted, we certainly can make our spouses suffer long, 
Oliver may not be the easiest man to live with. He may truly be wearing Nora out. But being patient is a Christian responsibility, not just some blessing we give our spouses from time to time. When things are easy and our spouses are loving and kind, being patient is easy. There's no test at all then, is there? But true patience is only possible in the fires of suffering and difficulty. It is when we suffer that we find out if we are patient people or not, whether we are willing to suffer long or not. Patience transforms our marriages. It is a real, tangible infusion of grace. If you think about it, it is our work's righteousness that produces the fruit of impatience. We just don't want to wait around for real heart change. And we don't really believe in the gracious power of God in our marriage. Now let's go on to the next verse in Colossians 3, verse 14. Paul writes, And above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So let's now talk a bit about love. The Apostle Paul puts love at the top of the list of virtues. It is above all other characteristics of a follower of Christ. It also tops the list of the fruit of the Spirit. According to 1 Corinthians 13, it's even greater than faith and hope. Love is the chief defining quality of a Christian. Think about it. What does an unloving Christian say about a loving God? If God is love, then his people have to be people of love. So Paul says, above all the virtues that must be in marriage is love. But then he says something very interesting in that verse as well. Love binds everything together. So in one sense, love is at the top of the list of virtues, but in another sense, love is the virtue that connects or binds together all the other virtues. Without love, the other virtues will leave a Christian lacking. Paul here is also pointing to the fact that it is love that binds or welds Christians together in perfect harmony. Just as perfect binding of a book stitches together all the pages, love stitches together Christians. It is the glue that keeps us in fellowship with one another. Love is what brings together people that are different and even dissonant into perfect harmony. So it is also the love of Christ in our hearts that glues Christians together in the most intimate of relationships, marriage. So now let's get specific about love and marriage. Again, as Frank Sinatra teaches us, what's marriage without love? Consider how connected love and marriage are. Before we get married, we talk about falling in love. We remember the first time We said, I love you to the person who would become our spouse. We describe ourselves in marriage as being in love. And about the worst thing you could say to your spouse is that you don't love her or him anymore. Love is truly the glue that holds marriage together. We may properly say that commitment to God is the bedrock of marriage, but love is certainly the bond. Love is that necessary ingredient to Christian marriage because God is love. 
Christian marriage reflects Christ's love for his church. So defining love correctly is essential to our marriages. A biblical understanding of love and marriage begins with the truth that love is an action. Love is something we give. Love is something we do. Too often, love is primarily defined in this world by how we feel. Love is purely emotive and is a feeling that comes and goes. While love certainly has a feeling component to it, that can't be at its core. It must begin with a committed action, a choice to love your spouse because God loves you. So to love our spouses, we must do loving things. We must speak in loving ways. We must maintain loving attitudes. We must do things that the other person considers to be loving. If you think about it, it is impossible to love passively. Think about that again. It's impossible to love passively. It is not truly Christ-like love if we only do loving things when we feel like it either. Your spouse needs acts of love all the time throughout each day. And worse, if you say, I love you, but act unlovingly, it makes no sense to your spouse. Our actions must be consistent with our words. Next, true biblical love in marriage is uniquely sacrificial. It requires a giving of oneself, often beyond what is comfortable or convenient or even possible. Think about it. Is it possible to love your spouse without having to sacrifice anything for them? It was the love of Christ that compelled him to give his life for his people. Christian love must always include sacrifice of self. I have told many a husband that their actions in marriage make it seem like they are trying to be single and married at the same time. They regularly think about how to never give up the things that they love, but somehow also be a loving husband at the same time. Unfortunately, we can often try to love our spouses with minimal sacrifice. We don't really want it to be too costly or too risky or without reward. To give of ourselves selflessly and sacrificially can be quite a challenge. And yet, sacrificing of ourselves is one of the clearest and loudest demonstrations of love there is. When we see someone really sacrifice for us, we are pretty convinced that it came from a heart of real love. Loving your spouse requires giving and giving up. We are to give of ourselves. We give up many things that are our lesser loves. This tells our spouse that as far as earthly relationships go, he or she is our greatest love. Then in our marriage, we need to recognize that love has a strong component of passion as well. It must not be thought of as just robotic, non-feeling action. Passion is that God-given energy of excitement. When we are passionate about something, we talk incessantly about it. We think about it all the time. We plan to find ways to do whatever we're passionate about. The problem is that we become more passionate about things and activities than we do for our spouses. We have misdirected and misguided passions. Then these things and activities that we love become idols to us. The attention we give to them is disproportionate to what should be given 
to our spouse. Nicole is often frustrated by Owen's deer hunting hobby. Early in their marriage, she used to go hunting with him, but five children later, and she has a few other things on her plate. But Owen's passion for hunting has only increased over the years. Unfortunately, this has become a regular conflict through the years, especially during hunting season itself. Owen has tried to cut back and stay home, but even then his mind is on hunting, watching hunting videos, reading hunting magazines, etc. In Nicole's mind, Owen loves deer hunting more than he loves her. Every time he goes hunting, it feels a little like an affair. Now, while there's nothing inherently wrong with having a hobby, it can become an idol when it consumes our passions. Our passions cause us not only to be preoccupied by it, but also have our emotions ruled by it. But our chief passion, other than for Jesus Christ, should be for our marriage. Do you believe that? Or is that just some romantic ideal? True Christian love for your spouse must be infused with passion. To be passionless in your marriage means your energy is being used up in your lesser loves. Your spouse will naturally feel somewhat jealous if he or she sees you more passionate about other things, not to mention other people. We will naturally become jealous in our marriage when our spouse is passionate for other things more than for Christ and for us. Another essential aspect of love and marriage is learning to love the unlovable. Think back to your dating days. Wasn't your future spouse so lovable back then? Sure, you had your conflicts, maybe even some bad breakups. But your spouse seemed to be so warm and cuddly, so great to be around. Back then, it was so hard to think of not being with him or her. Well, is that just the honeymoon phase of marriage? Well, in some respects, yes. We are blinded by some emotion, that's for sure. But it is a very sad thing when we're no longer seeking to be with our spouse, to give them the love that Christ has given us. What we learn later on in marriage is that we have married an unlovable person. No, our spouses aren't always unlovable, but they can be some of the time. The problem is that our natural tendency is to only love those who love us. But Scripture tells us that even non-Christians can do that. Christians are given the higher calling of loving people who hate us and loving those who are most difficult to love. If you only love your spouse when he or she is lovable, you are no better than the pagans, and you set your marriage up to be works-based and rewards-based instead of grace-based. It'll be driven by conditional love rather than unconditional love. Now, let me be clear, unconditional love is impossible to give another human being. We always have some conditions in our hearts as sinners. That's why we need Jesus. We need his love to love our spouses. But if you see yourself only being loving when you feel loved or when the other person deserves it, you don't understand the love of Christ. And you're doing a great disservice to your marriage. Now let's end with one last component of love in marriage. Here's a bold proposition for you. The best way to love your spouse 
is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The greatest of commandments is not just for single people. Your spouse needs you to love God even more than you love him or her. We get our priorities out of whack when our focus is just, how can I love my spouse more? As noble as this desire sounds, it will only turn into an idolatrous search when it is not connected to the priority of loving God first and foremost. Your spouse may communicate that your heart should be devoted to her first, but hopefully she doesn't really believe that if she is a believer in Christ. In your marriage, love God first. Love God more. Make him the center of your affections. When you do that, your heart will be drawn to love your spouse as an overflow of loving God. And God will get the glory for your marriage rather than you giving the glory to your spouse. Even when you are struggling to love your spouse, give God your highest attention and passion and watch how he grows your love for your spouse as a byproduct. So love and marriage, love and marriage. Can you really have one without the other? And how much more robust and transformative is love that is deeply wedded to compassion? Your spouse needs you to be a channel of the love of God, binding together the virtues of mercy, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. In an age where our passions can often be so misdirected, by God's grace, renew your heart in a deep love for God and a love and compassion for your closest neighbor, your spouse. Thank you for listening to Biblical Counseling Today with Dr. John Kwasney. This weekly podcast is supported by Biblical Counseling and Training Ministries, which you can learn more about at bctministries.com. If you have found yourself encouraged or challenged today, please share this podcast with your church, family, and friends. Rate us on iTunes and your social media outlets. It really helps. Until next time, may you enjoy the riches of God's compassionate grace and mercy in your life.